You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, well, let's, uh, well, here's what we're going to do. It's, it's going to be a little bit counterintuitive, uh, which is apropos considering uh, the, the content of what Paul has written for us here this morning, but we're actually going to kind of reverse engineer this. We're going to start in verse 26, and this is what it says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let no one who boasts, or let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why are we starting there? Well, it's really fairly simple. I mentioned last week that Paul is writing to a church that is divided. And it's a church that's divided, but that is living in a city that shares a united purpose. Corinth, as we talked about last week, is not an aristocracy. Meaning there's not sort of this generations of wealthy people, generations of families who have traditionally sort of led this young city. No, this is a young, youthful city that is growing because of its economic opportunity. And so Corinth is not an aristocracy, it's a meritocracy. Meaning the people that have power in Corinth have power because they have earned it. They've either set up some sort of business or they've become sort of rhetorically well-known in a city that valued public discourse, right? They've, they've earned for themselves the reputation that they have built in Corinth. And so Corinth is the place that you go to make it, right? If you don't come from a noble family, if you don't come from lots of money, if you don't come from this sort of privileged background, you go to Corinth. And so everyone that's in Corinth, although they're divided on an individual level, their pursuit is similar. Everyone is trying to claw their way forward, trying to to claw their way up that social ladder. And in order to climb that ladder in Corinth, you needed one or both of wisdom and power. Or more often than not, if you had wisdom, it brought power. And so the Corinthian Christians are surrounded by this pursuit, by this group, this collection of people in this large city named Corinth that are all in this journey, this battle together. And so the Corinthian Christians have Evidently, from what Paul is writing to them, bought into that paradigm. 
into that cultural value, seeking wisdom because it was a means of achieving cultural power. And so Paul looks out over this diverse church with people from different backgrounds and who occupy different socioeconomic strata, and he knows that all of them are looking for that wisdom or that thing that will take them to the next level of power. And in that, the first thing that he does is to remind them who they are. And so again, right, you have a divided church that is being torn apart in many ways by the common pursuit of the culture around them, which is a pursuit of wisdom, a pursuit of power, and Paul looks at all of them in the room, and he says, every reason that this culture says you can now boast as Christians, you no longer have a right to boast in. And so Paul is writing to a hurt church, a broken church, a divided church. And the first thing that he writes to them about is their identity, their new identity in Christ. And so Paul, what he's doing by, by ordering the letter in this way, he's making it clear that healing and unity for the church in Corinth begins with believing the gospel. We start with what God did. Now here's the thing. I want to be clear about this before we move on. You'll notice that I said Paul believes that unity and healing for the church in Corinth begins with believing the gospel. Where we can get into trouble is in believing that healing and unity also end there. Let's remember that this is only chapter one. Paul is not using the gospel in chapter one to avoid a conversation. Rather, he's using the gospel in chapter one to frame a difficult conversation. And so here's the thing. There are outworkings of the gospel that deal in the conventional wisdom of the world. There are ways that we are going to be called to operate together, but they are framed by who we are in Jesus. You see, the gospel doesn't, doesn't negate having the difficult conversation. Rather, it frames it in such a way that the difficult conversation becomes productive. And so what does Paul tell these confused Corinthian Christians? Well, he tells them who they are. In verse 30, what does he say? Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. You're, you're in Christ who became to us wisdom from God. But you are in Christ, and in Christ you are what? You are righteousness, you are sanctification, and you are redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it's because of Jesus, not only do we have righteousness, 
sanctification and redemption, but that we are righteous, that we are sanctified, and that we are redeemed. That is who we are in the eyes of God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And Paul goes on to make it clear that if that is true, then if there is any boasting, if there is any bragging, if there is any thing to be claimed, it is a boasting in, a glorying in, a claim in God's goodness and not theirs. And Paul uses these three terms in particular on purpose, right? That the Corinthians are righteous, that they're legally right before God, that through Jesus we've been Acquitted, our charges have been dropped, that in Jesus we are sanctified, meaning we're holy, we're set apart, right? Those, those terms that could not be earned on our own, we've now been made by Jesus. Redeemed, redemption, this, this idea of slavery, that we've been set free from those things that enslaved us because of Jesus. Set free from sin, set free from death, set free from Satan, right? In Christ, we not only have these things, but we are them. Righteous, sanctified, redeemed. And so if that's true, what is Paul saying? He's saying that it doesn't matter how self-made you may be in the Corinthian value system. It's, it's highly likely that there are people in the church in Corinth that have quote-unquote made it. That either because of their wealth or because their rhetorical ability or because of their, their power in that culture, others in that church are looking to them and trying to follow in their footsteps. And, and, and Paul says, listen, none of that matters. Because at the end of the day, what is most true about you and what you most own is yours and owned by you because of another. This is where unity and healing for the Corinthian church begins. Recognizing that there is an equal need of Christ and an equal standing before God because of Christ. But Paul doesn't just deconstruct the Corinthians' understanding of themselves, but their understanding of the whole lens through which they see the world. You see, the gospel is not only what Paul expects to unite the church in Corinth, it is what he expects to upend the culture in Corinth as a whole. This is what... Paul says in verse 18, says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And folly is a great word, but, but if we were to translate it in something sort of more readily understandable, it would, it would be considered offensively ridiculous. The word of the cross is offensively ridiculous to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly, there's that word again, to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so this gospel not only confronts us on an individual level and causes us to evaluate ourselves differently, but it also upends the world that we are looking at. You see, the Corinthians have been tempted to abandon the message of the cross for more eloquent alternatives because they've recognized something true. There's nothing that is particularly eloquent or particularly attractive about the message of the cross. The cross is not immediately something that is philosophically compelling, right? Now remember, in Corinth, right, public entertainment is let's go listen to two smart people talk. And Paul shows up and says, you're saved because a 33-year-old carpenter who you've never heard of died on your behalf. And by the way, he happened to be God. And that's significant. The cross of Christ, the wisdom of God, Paul says, is foolishness because it simply doesn't make sense within the reigning paradigm in Corinth. The Greeks preferred to use reasoning and judgment to attain knowledge of God. And because their intellect was the main medium to perceiving God, they found it impossible to conceive of a personal God. No sane person in Corinth is looking to embrace a wisdom that's going to land them on a cross, on death row, in the electric chair. Wisdom is supposed to do the opposite, right? Wisdom is the currency with which we purchase the commodity of power in Corinth. But it's not just foolishness to Greeks, it's foolishness to the Jews as well. Right? Paul sets out this dramatic con contrast. It's easy to see why a crucified Messiah or God would be foolish to the Greek, to the Gentile in Corinth. But it's also foolish to Jews because how can someone be powerful if one suffers the ultimate penalty from Rome? This is why a crucified Messiah is a scandal to the Jews. They looked for a Messiah who would come and who would triumph over all of their foes, not be executed by them. A crucified Messiah was an oxymoron, a, a contradiction in terms. 
And so from the perspective of human power grasping, God's power can be called nothing other than weakness. There's no power in being crucified. That is the ultimate display of weakness, ultimate display of vulnerability and frailty. God's weak power is a declaration of man's ultimate powerlessness. As it relates to his relationship with God, power is giving up one's own power. And again, if power is the ultimate cultural value, then this is nothing short of a scandal. Which is why in verse 23, Paul tells us that Christ being crucified was a scandalon. Literally a scandal to the Jews. And so it's not just that this gospel takes and changes and upends who we are. It also upends the way we filter, the way we view, what the culture values. Our values, in fact, get upended as well. And what ultimately is produced by that, when you have people who have been upended by the gospel, and when you have a whole value set, a whole culture that has been upended, reevaluated in light of the cross of Jesus, what you have is an upside-down world, a, a, a paradoxical worldview. We talked about this not too long ago on Palm Sunday. Where in Mark, we, we read frequently Jesus' upending, Jesus' turning things upside down. That if you want to save your life, first you have to lose it. If you want to be overall, you have to be the servant of all. Paul continues along those same lines. And he makes it clear in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. He says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now this is significant. Some of us may be familiar with Paul. Paul's kind of a, kind of a rock star in the whole Bible world. Um, wrote a significant portion of, of the New Testament, obviously. But here's what we, what we need to know about Paul, in particular as he writes these words. Paul, according to the Corinthian set of cultural values, that is wisdom and that is power, has both in spades. Paul is highly, highly educated. I mean, I'm talking Ivy League, right? Paul is highly, highly educated. And it becomes clear to us throughout Paul's writing and the way that he engages with the philosophical sort of debaters of his day that he knows what he's talking about. He's highly, highly educated. Because he's highly, highly educated, because he has obtained the honor of that high education, he's also, throughout his life, been well regarded in the eyes of others. He had cultural power. Paul did. And 
And so listen, it's, it's one thing to say power and wisdom don't matter when you don't have power or wisdom. It's another thing to say power and wisdom don't matter when you have both power and wisdom. And so here you have Paul, someone who could, if he wanted to, rely upon those things more likely than not to the applause of the Corinthians. Who instead says, when I came to you, I did not come proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. You know I could have, but I didn't. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he goes on and he says this, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul, although he arguably has reached the pinnacle of what the, the Corinthian culture would have valued, says, oh no, I found true power. And I have found true wisdom. And so listen. I think this is incredibly, incredibly helpful for us in the world that we occupy. Because I don't, I, I mentioned it last week, I don't think that Houston is much different Listen, let's be honest, right? I, I, I love Houston. Nobody's coming here for the weather. <laughs> Nobody's coming here for the, the beautiful mountains and the winter skiing, right? Nobody's coming here for that wonderful beach we call home in Galveston, beach, right? Like, no. Nobody's coming here for those things. People come to Houston to make it, Right? Houston is the stepping block. This is the place where we come and we build up that, that wisdom or, or that power within our workplace, within our sphere of influence, and we take that and we leverage it into what we want down the line, right? It's like you got to do your time in Houston so that you can get to your Seattle. And so listen, the, the, the value system really isn't that different, is it? It's real tempting to just kind of let the flow take us, right? Like, okay, let's not, let's not nitpick on some of those things. Let's, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this thing here. I'm going to follow sort of my own direction here. I'm going to, I'm going to claw and pursue and it doesn't matter sort of who is left in my wake like at the end of the day I'm just trying to get out of here so right I don't want to upset too many apple carts I don't want to step on too many toes like let's just kind of how can I massage this whole being a follower of Jesus being a disciple of Jesus into the pursuit of what what this world and, and ultimately I value 
So we sort of constantly find ourselves in these negotiating moments, right, where we, where we sort of need to compromise on, like, what's, what's good and what's right and what's, what, what it really means to follow Jesus in, in light of those things. And in all likelihood, it's because we're scared We're scared that in following a weak Savior, we might also be called to be weak. In following a foolish Savior, we might be called to actually appear foolish in the eyes of the world. There's incredible cultural pressure to be seen as wise in Corinth. Or maybe for us, it's a, a different W word, right? Woke. I'm getting older and it's like less and less cool when I say things like that. <laughs> but like, like all joking aside and all silly words aside, right? There's incredible pressure to that, right? You have to sort of be able to repeat talking points. You have to sort of be able to think a certain way. You have to sort of be able to... Right? Right? And, so, and so if that's the pressure and if that's sort of the, the, the way that we obtain cultural significance, cultural power, if we're not anything unless we're woke, then that means we're going to be willing to compromise so that we can be seen as woke. And yet Paul in all of that is saying, listen, forget all that. You're righteous. You're holy. You're redeemed, not because of what you do, but because of who Jesus has made you to be. And that has come to you not through the prevailing sort of value systems of the world, but through the foolishness of the cross, through the weakness of Christ, being willing to be put to death in our stead so that we might then be resurrected in glory with him. You see, the whole value system is entirely upside down. And I think if we're honest, we'll, we'll, we'll all kind of arrive at the same place that Paul arrives in verse 5, and I love this. He says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I think what Paul knows, having studied throughout the majority of his life, is that there is a point at which the answer to the question why becomes because it is, right? My daughter's like in that wonderful, annoying phase where everything is why. And it always ends with either because I said so or because that's what it is. And Paul says if we're, if we're resting on the wisdom of the world, there's going to come a point at which the end of that thread, we get to the end of that thread, and there's nothing left. It's got nothing left to offer us. And one of two things will happen. We'll either be crushed by the fact that there's no certainty, no understanding, nothing that can help us in the world, or we will turn in faith to Christ who holds all of those things in the palm of his hand who through his weakness in the cross has shown us his overwhelming power in the resurrection. And so I, th I think this is our challenge, brothers and sisters. Are we willing 
to be foolish. Or better yet, if we understand the text correctly, are we willing to be seen as foolish? Because if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then we know already that in his eyes, in his value system, according to the created order of his universe, in trusting Jesus, we are wise. But we might not be seen as such. Right, so we, we, we are wise because of Jesus, but we might not be seen as wise. Are we willing to be weak? Are we willing to walk in the day-to-day life knowing that the power of God by His Spirit, by His Spirit literally resides within us and to trust and rely upon that even though it might lead us into worldly situations that will suggest that we are weak. Weak-minded, weak-willed. You need that crutch of a religion. You are, you are too mentally weak to sort of escape, to, to wake up out of that drunken religious stupor that you're in. You're so ignorant. You're so... Right? And listen, I... like. I kind of want to even go a a bit further than that. And not only ask the question, are we willing to be weak? Are we willing to be foolish? But listen, maybe it's not only okay that our message sounds foolish, but maybe it's imperative that it does. Like, do you you understand that? Like, if, if, if it's through the foolishness of the cross that we've been saved, if it's through the foolishness of the Christ, that, uh, of, of the cross of Christ that we've been made righteous, that we've been sanctified, that we've been redeemed, right? Like if, if God's power came upon us in a moment where Christ crucified was proclaimed, then maybe, just maybe, we shouldn't be trying to hedge the foolishness of the cross, but rather elevate it. Like that maybe at some level we should be excited about the fact that what we're saying is utterly scandalous, an offensive, ridiculous thing. Because God uses that which is ridiculously offensive to shame the wise. Maybe it's not only okay that we are weak, but it's imperative, right? Maybe rather than spending so much of our week, so much of our time, both as individuals and as institutions, trying to create this facade of strength, trying to create this this view of ourselves where we're sort of impregnable, impenetrable, right? Where we've got it all together, there's no chinks in this armor, right? There's no, nobody's sort of getting in and messing with this energy, right? Maybe instead of spending so much time trying to manufacture and do those things, we can admit that we're weak, trusting that in God we'll be made strong. Because if God can make dead things alive, he can make foolish things wise. He can make weak things powerful. And that maybe, just maybe, through our willingness and our excitement even about being found foolish and about being found weak, we will in fact be found to be wise and to be strong. Because that is where God's power resides. All right, that's what Paul says 
in verse 4 of chapter 2. He says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power. May we be a people willing, not only willing, but, but maybe even excited to be found foolish in the eyes of the world so that we might be wise in the eyes of God, weak in the eyes of the world so that we might operate in the strength of God in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. And Lord, I thank you that this morning, God, we're gathered together not uh, as an incredibly impressive group of people, uh, not as... Uh, a super well-oiled machine, not as sort of this <laughs> this incredibly polished and and wise expression of worldly power. But Father, we're gathered together in light of your crucified Son. And in that, God, there is much wisdom and there is much power. And Father, as we move into uh, the, the rest of this letter, God, where there's so much to be discussed, so many things that need to be dealt with with wisdom, God, we trust that you are the only one that can give that to us. And we pray, Father, that you keep us from the lie of believing that the wisdom of the world or that the power of the world are of any consequence in your kingdom. Lord, we trust you and we believe in you for all things that we need to navigate daily life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.